Our next speaker is Dr. David Dornbos. He is at Calvin College in the plant sciences. Dr. Dornbos. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. I was tickled to see the topic of the session, sustainable agriculture, hunger in a global, global environment. What I hope to do is think with you a little bit about what sustainable agriculture is, what it looks like in a developed country like the United States, and then share with you some of our experiences in Cambodia and to think with you then about how these technologies may or may not be applicable to a developing country such as, such as Cambodia as a specific example. So that's what I would like to use as a case study. Maybe a bit about my personal context. Um, I was educated in agronomy, specifically crop production and physiology at Ohio and Iowa State, and spent 15 years working in agricultural industry. So I spent about, of those 15 years, about eight years in product development, where I was focused in North America, developing and testing uh, new genetics, as well as the new biotechnological traits that you're aware of now as BT corn and Ronda Pretty soybeans. And through that work, spending lots of time on farm with farmers, had the opportunity to see firsthand what industrialized agricultural processes look like and what their efforts to implement sustainable agricultural um, adaptations look like. Four years ago, I changed careers. I took kind of a left turn and I joined the, the biology faculty at Calvin College. And at Calvin, I teach a couple of courses dealing with plant biology, plant physiology, but have taught an interim, which is a January term in global hunger at Calvin. And since then have taken two class trips to Cambodia where we spent a month in each case. Didn't mention up here, but the last seven years working with Syngenta, I was the global head of the seed production groups. That as well got me into a, a number of countries around the globe, both developed as well as developing. So as far as an agenda, I've got three basic areas that I'd like to move through with you. Uh, the first two fairly quickly. The first one is why care, thinking about maybe sustainability, stewardship issues, population, and hunger. The second to give you a perspective of what food production systems look like across the spectrum of subsistence, industrial green revolution. I understand that in North America, less than 1% of people are directly involved in food production. So there's not a lot of innate knowledge of what these systems necessarily look like. They, are ten they all tend to be complicated and highly integrated systems. Then from there, go into sustainable agriculture, what that is, what that looks like, what some of the innovations are. Sustainable agriculture means a lot of things to a lot of people. It tends to be a bit of a buzzword, so I want to get fairly practical there. And then think very specifically about what these technologies may or may not look like in a place like Cambodia. So sustainability in the faith community. First of all, sustainability, it's interesting to me, has largely been in my understanding, a secular term. It's not a term that you heard here being spoken a lot in churches. Um, one definition of, of sustainable, sustainability, sustainable development particularly, is that it's development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So fairly broad. Stewardship, on the other hand, tends to be bit, a bit more of a faith term. 
And if you talk to people and you play word association games and do those sorts of things, what you hear a lot is terms relating to money, to tithing. And, and I know in this audience, and I've seen you know, this weekend, that a lot of you are thinking much more broadly about what stewardship is. And I think that's great, and I think that's appropriate. So maybe a couple of key, key verses maybe to come back to is Genesis 1. Each day after God created, he saw that it was good or very good. Genesis 2.15, God took man, put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. Maybe to use it, extract value from it, but at the same time, preserve it, conserve it. So those two phrases need to be coupled in the context of what I would call a broader understanding of stewardship. As we start talking about global issues, population, hunger, and understanding the fact that we are living in a global economy, a global atmosphere, Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, 39, and each of the Gospels starts to ring pretty true. And Jesus said, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That in... In the context of our worship service this morning, we hit John 3, 1 John 3, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So there's a rationale as to why we should care. People depend on it. People's lives depend on it. So let's relate the two words. Sustainability and stewardship, are they the same thing? Or is sustainability something greater than stewardship? Or is it something less than stewardship? How big is your frame of what stewardship is relative to sustainability? I'm going to let that one hang. Think about it. Well, I'm not going to let it hang too long. Um, sustainability, just to give you a bit more context, I'm thinking of as a very broad term. I'm thinking of it with ecological or environmental context, economic context, and social slash community context. So to get to the point of having true health, that could be human health, environmental health, all of it, you've got to simultaneously satisfy each of these dimensions in the Venn diagram. So no innovation is truly sustainable unless you satisfy all three of those dimensions. So where would you put stewardship in this picture? So if this is the picture of sustainability, where would you put stewardship? Well, at least in, in my way of thinking, here's where I put it. I think of stewardship as being something greater than sustainability, probably encompassing all of sustainability. The broader world might not understand that, but maybe in the faith community we do. So that's a bit of the context of where I'm, I'm coming at you from. Now let's, let's get more specific to the topic at hand, that of sustainable agriculture. So I went to the source. They actually have, I think, a pretty sound definition from what I could, from what I could tell. Sustainable agriculture refers to the ability of a farm to produce food indefinitely without causing irreversible damage to, the, to ecosystem health. The Wikipedia demonstration of the definition, the explanation goes on to integrate three main goals. Environmental stewardship, there's the environmental component. Farm profitability, the economic component. 
in farming communities, the social component. You can't take the farming community out of the cultural community that it nests within. So we have to somehow, as we think about sustainable agriculture and what it is, satisfy each of these dimensions. So what, maybe to, before we go to this particular graph, what I want to do is one of the themes that I want you to take away then is that agriculture sustainability should be a natural extension of Christian stewardship, but the practical application of this is problematic. There are going to be trade-offs with, with how you apply sustainable agriculture. So I'll shift gears a little bit. Population and hunger. Um, World Health Organization 2005 published this map. It shows the global prevalence of underweight children, underweight in children under the age of five. And I think you're probably well aware of the geographic distribution there. The greatest proportion of underweight children and food need is in Africa and Southeast Asia. No surprise. The next map might be, as well, not a surprise, uh, that there's clearly a life expectancy relationship to being underweight. So what this shows is the average age of live births, longevity, 78 years in 1995, 79 in 2000 amongst the richest nations, and 43 and 42 amongst the poorest nations. Being underweight has consequences. This map as well is probably not a surprise. It is as well the geographic distribution of now global obesity. And you can clearly see that this area of the world does not have many colored in countries. The areas of the world with developing developed countries do. Although it's not, you know, the correlation's not 100%. So global population and hunger. We've got these two maps. We've got undernourished parts. We've got overnourished parts. And I've got six, I guess, numbers there. What do those numbers mean? 9.5 billion? What's that? Anticipated peak global population year 2050. How about 6.2 billion? Current global population, 1.3 billion. I'm changing categories on you. This, one's a, this one may be a bit of a surprise. It's the number of people globally suffering from overnutrition. How about 852 million? Anybody take a guess? It's the number of people globally suffering from undernutrition. Interesting. 500 million. Bit of a categorical change here again, too, just to warn you. Number of undernourished people who have no land. We can get into why they have no land. It's a whole other story. Really don't need to go there today, but I think it's important. As we're going to think about application of sustainable agriculture, who is our audience? They are not it. They don't have a backyard. They can't even have a vegetable garden. 170 million, that's the number of undernourished children less than the age of five, one of, three who, one of who will die every three seconds. That's the current situation. Well, 
those numbers aren't new to our global leaders. So in 2000, uh, the UN had a group of people that developed what are called the Millennium Development Goals. You've probably heard about them. You, you may well know that there are eight. I'm picking on two. I think two are particularly relevant here. And the goal is to satisfy these goals by the year 2015. So we're halfway there. The first goal is to eradicate extreme poverty and hunger. And the second, or the seventh one actually, is to ensure environmental sustainability. In a lot of circles, those are perceived as conflicting goals. Because if we're going to satisfy global hunger, that means we're going to have to potentially take care of land in such a way that uh, to, to get the maximum food production, it's going to cost us environmental sustainability. So can both goals be accomplished simultaneously? And this is the second theme that I want to, to bring to you. It's that is, we have the opportunity to, to address poverty and hunger today without necessarily hurting the environment because there is adequate food in the world today. It's not about how much food the globe is able to produce. There are other issues at play. It pertains more to distribution. So three food production systems. 1.3 billion of the 6.2 on Earth today rely on industrial agriculture. We're among them. 2.7 billion rely on agriculture resulting from the Green Revolution in the 60s and the 70s. 2.2 billion rely on subsistence farming. It's more or less how it breaks out. Two-thirds, a third. So subsistence farming, just very quickly, think about polycultures using local genetics. These are people, for the most part, that are incredibly poor, incomes of a dollar a day. They don't have any wherewithal to buy seeds, fertilizer. They have labor, lots of labor. In Cambodia, 85% of the population works on farm, lives on farm. There is low or no technology. They're lucky to have a, a metal hoe. And there may be some use of pesticides or fertilizers. If there is, it's a minimum amount, and they're probably off-patent chemicals, chemicals that are illegal to be sold here. That's the current situation in most subsistence countries. Certainly true in Cambodia. Trade-offs. Okay, there's, there's yield, high yield potential in polycultures. It's potential. There's genetic diversity. They're using land races. Minimum capital investment could be an advantage, depending on how you look at it. Low input costs certainly fosters community. You're out there working with your family. Problems, low yield, nutrient deficiency, soil erosion, pesticide toxicity. They see chemicals often as plant medicine, so they think if it's good for plants, it's good for me too, kind of thing. Water quantity and quality may be jeopardized depending on the extent to which they might be using pesticides. Industrial agriculture, highly competitive, high volume, low return, it's efficient, there's a heavy reliance on fossil fuel and technology, whether we're talking about precision ag, genetics, biotech. Monocultures, corn and soybean fields, one crop per year. A heavy reliance on, reliance on fertilizers and pesticides. And if you look at um, some of the USDA Economic Research Service numbers, you can see output and productivity continue to climb from 1948 to 2004. Input rates flat, relatively encouraging. So what that looks like in a highly integrated system is that you're probably going to soil test. You're going to apply lime fertilizers in the fall. You're going to manage soil res 
uh, plant residues very carefully to try to you know, get rid of them, break insect disease cycles, that type of thing, maybe, maybe reduce erosion rates, although you know, we're kind of tending into sustainable ag a little bit. Um, we're talking about probably spring fertilization, a highly tailored system to crop soils in expected yield goals. Um, we're probably talking about pesticide applications pre-plant, potentially. Um, there's, a, there's certainly a planting process. There's, cert there's probably a post-emergent weed control effort and, as well, insecticide effort in case insects come along and start munching on your crop. Ultimately, in the end of the day, we're talking about a very sophisticated, high-input, technology-heavy system that requires a lot of inputs. So, large quantities of food. It's inexpensive. Labor cost is extremely low. It's efficient. Maybe. Efficiency here is defined very narrowly. Efficiency is defined as essentially low labor input, because that's the expensive component in developed countries. It may not be an applicable term relative to the developed, developing world. Problems, energy requirement, capital investment, input costs, soil erosion, freshwater quality, loss of organic matter in soils for a long period of time, lost community, just look at the efflux of people from the Midwest, Turns out if you take the externalized cost from these problems and apply it to the inexpensive food, it's not inexpensive anymore. It's just that we don't see the costs. So what kind of food production system should we export? Well, in the 60s, people like Norman Borlaug did a fairly extensive breeding effort to develop high-yielding, uh, varieties of, of rice and of wheat. Um, these kinds of crops tended to require pesticides and fertilizers to be productive. This, these, these new types of genetics were exported. And here's part of the story. India, as one country in particular, benefited tremendously from the Green Revolution. So you can track from 1975 through 1995 the rates of paddy rice yield increases, wheat, sugarcane, coarse grain cereals, they didn't need as much anymore, so they just didn't grow those. Um, by at least some measures, this was a very, very successful uh, adventure. Drivers of the Green Revolution improved genetics, increased use of fertilizers and pesticides, but part of the question here, is this an environmental report card we can afford to have? So this is a report card taken from uh, the world, the, what is it, the, I um, can't remember the name of the, of the group. At any rate, here's agricultural. Um, and if you look at food fiber production and the capacity to produce right now, it's pretty good, but there's concern that we might not be able to maintain that level of production going forward. Water quality, uh, not too good. Water quantity, fair. Biodiversity, not good. Carbon storage, fair. And with sustainable agriculture, there's kind of a mixed message there. Ultimately, is this the kind of report card that we want to export with this system of production? Can the developing country afford that report card? So sustainable agriculture, what does that look like? Essentially, what sustainable agriculture is, is an effort to redeem or reform industrialized agriculture. And so here are a few components of it. Agronomic practices include changing how soils are managed. So farmers using more minimum or no-till residue management. So that's what that's showing. 
Contour farming. So that's what this is showing. Planting on the contour to slow rates of soil erosion, which is part of what this is after. Use of terraces. Use of cover crops. Cover crops to slow soil erosion as well as maybe feed nitrogen into soils. Um, there's, there are efforts within sustainable agriculture to improve water use efficiency. So the use of low-pressure irrigation systems reduce tremendously the amount of water that, that needs to be utilized and has helped people a lot in the West. Integrated pest management is an idea that's been developed to try to, in a, in a sense, restrict or reduce the amount of herbicides and insecticides that are used on farm fields by using economic drivers. So here's an example of an integrated pest management website. So this is a website that farmers are directed to go to. It's a pretty good repository of information. It's at the University of Illinois. A number of different universities feed information into that. You can select your crop. You can, just, you can select whether or not you're trying to look at maybe a, a sustainable agricultural or IPM method of controlling diseases or insects. Um, there, there's a lot of information in here, and there's a tremendous amount of technology that goes in, into the recommendations that they give. One little example, uh, the European corn borer is a particularly egregious pest of corn. Uh, it, it bores into corn stalks and reduces yields to the extent of a billion dollars per year in the United States. Control options have historically been rely on God's will. If the insects come, they're going to eat. You don't do anything. See them or see them, spray them. That's not using IPM. Using an IPM calculator, which is essentially an economically dr driven decision-making guide, or more recently, BT corn, a biotechnological innovation. So here's an example of the calculator. As a farmer, you'd go out in the field and you'd count bugs and you'd estimate what your yield goals are and that kind of thing. You plug your numbers into that calculator and you get scenarios like this. So you plug in these kinds of numbers and you say, oh, negative $5.39 per acre, don't spray. Uh, you maybe increase the number of larvae. There's more insects out there. Oh, you still don't spray, but it's closer. Or you say, you know what, um, I'm estimating survival rate of the insects not to be 20%, but 50%. All of a sudden, I'm losing $9 per acre, or I gain $9 per acre, factoring in the, the cost of the spray and the material and the cost of spray and all of that, so you're going to spray. And so you can plug in lots of different scenarios and, and get those kinds of answers. So now let's shift gears again. Let's bring these sustainable agricultural ideas to the developing countries. And specifically, um, my context, again, is, is Cambodia. So I, as I was thinking about this, there were five guiding principles that came to my mind. One is that we've got to build local agronomic knowledge in the developing world. They can't build calculators. They can't even get close because they don't know anything hardly about even what insect pests are there, what disease pests, or what the economic ramifications are. We've got to evaluate the technological applications in local context. You can't take an industrialized system into a subsistence system and expect the same results. It's, it's just simply, for the most part, not relevant. Somehow we have to empower adopt, adoption of economically beneficial and sustainable practices. What does that mean? If your income is a dollar a day and you see that you can make a huge gain by using even the smallest amount of nitrogenous fertilizer, but you can't afford any of the nitrogenous fertilizer, you don't have anything. Empower means somehow addressing the poverty issues so that people have the ability to act.
enable local leadership to teach themselves. Because as Martin pointed out, you're probably not going to stay there. So you want the legacy to be carried on. They have to see the value to them. And they have to be able to act on it. And avoid Western arrogance. Part of that is, is to go in there with an open mind, use indigenous knowledge, understand that they've got value, and you may well have ideas, good ideas, to take back to the industrialized world, and you might inform sustainable agricultural practice within an industrial system. So potential technologies to transfer. Here's kind of a list. Crop growth and development, fertility management, genetics, pesticides. And I've got a little example for each. I don't know that I'll have time to go through them all, but we'll hit a couple. One is what we call the system of rice intensification. It's developed originally at Cornell. And, and maybe the sustainable agricultural uh, idea here that most closely aligns is the idea of narrow row soybeans and maybe... Um, Maybe light capture or the management of light capture. So how do, you, how do you do it? Well, what farmers in Cambodia normally would do is they would plant clumps of rice, multiple plants, um, at a certain stage of their growth by hand. All, all SRI rice, sustainable rice, um, requires is that there's no additional inputs as you transplant single plants instead of a clump of plants. You transplant them earlier, almost two weeks earlier, which is kind of odd. It's, it's counterintuitive. Transplant quickly and don't press the root down into the mud. You actually just lay the root on the surface of the mud, which is what the, she's doing right there. Transplant, oh, transplant in a square grid. So don't plant in, in kind of rows of clumps, but plant in grids. And let soils dry occasionally and hand weed. When farmers have adopted SRR rice in Cambodia, what they tell us is that they're getting from two to three X yield levels. If you understand how grass plants grow and develop, the SRI system makes sense because grass plants produce tillers. The earlier you can give the maximum amount of light to each plant, the greater the number of tillers that are incentivized to grow and the greater percentage of those tillers that grow will be fertile. So it's, what you're doing is you're just managing a crop plant in a way, a grass plant in the way that grass plants tend to grow. The bold ones are things that, like Cambodian farmers, really don't trust yet or don't do well. So they don't, they're not comfortable with letting, their, letting those patties dry out, and they certainly don't want to hand weed. That's hard work. But there's a benefit for doing that because roots need oxygen. So getting rid of the water for a period of time gives those roots a shot of oxygen. Um, fertility, so the idea of using no-till to manage residue, composting. Any kind of compost, all kinds of compost, let your imagination fly, works. So here's a composting bed, and so what they do is they'll have their kids go out and very actively collect compost, put it into the bin, and then prior to planting season, what they'll do is they'll spread the compost out on the paddy. The idea of using green manures. So whereas we might use hairy vetch in the United States as an over kind of a fall uh, green manure to drive nitrogen into the soil, there's the idea of using a, the water fern, azola, in conjunction with the bacterium anabina to do nitrogen fixation within rice paddies. Genetics. From going from hybrids, as we're used to in the United States, maybe, to improve land races. So yeah, doing some selection, maybe in the context of the International Rice Research Institute, but be careful. 
because every time you select, you're probably re reducing genetic variability and you're probably exposing yourself to disease resistance. The reason those land races yield less is because they have resistance built into them to lots of the different sorts of diseases that they would run into. Pesticides. Um, the idea of using sometimes things like chrysanthemums or marigolds as natural producers of pyrethroids. Chickens and ducks eat insects, including insects that are eating your rice or your vegetables, and then you can eat the eggs from those chickens, or you can eat the chickens. There's been a culture of burning. Burning releases not only carbon dioxide to the air, it reduces soil organic matter, it, and therefore reduces innate soil fertility. Not only that, if you leave rice residue on the field, there are natural insects that are eating this dead rice plant. They're not insects that are feeding on are going to hurt rice yields, but what they do is if you can keep those out there, you keep the levels of the predatory insects high so that when you get to the, the growing season for rice, the predator populations of those insects are high. Polycultures, the idea of using vegetable gardens and maybe even getting crops in the dry season, which is often not a possibility. In conclusion, hunger and sustainability issues should be addressed concomitantly and are not necessarily contradictory, but they could be. And require the leading of the faith community. Sustainable agricultural concepts, I believe, apply, but the technologies seldom do to food production issues in developing countries. And the key word to think about here is efficiency. Sustainable agricultural applications in developed countries like the United States are all about maintaining efficiency and improving some of the ills of the system. That's, that kind of efficiency is not a value in Cambodia. The last thing you want to do is send people off the farm. And development of appropriate technologies must be conducted in local context, considering agronomic, thinking broadly across environment and economic and in terms of community needs. All right, thanks. Thank you, Dr. Don Boss. I think in the interest of time, we'll need to move on, and I encourage you, if you have questions, that you chat uh, 